внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. Владимир Путин's Кремлин is militarizing Belarus and turning Alexander Lukashenko's autocratic regime into a force multiplier in his ongoing war against the West. Russia's arms buildup in the Western exclave of Kaliningrad continues apace and, together with the militarization of Belarus, threatens the security of NATO allies in the Baltic states and Poland. But with the focus of the United States largely on a rising and increasingly bellicose China, And with Russia being dismissed by many as a declining regional power, fears are mounting that the European front is not getting the attention it deserves. Can the West manage this new Cold War on two fronts? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from sunny Miami is the one and only David Kramer, a New England kid turned Florida man who served as assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights and labor in the administration of former President George W. Bush. David also served as as Deputy Assistant State Secretary of State for European Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been president of Freedom House and a senior director at the McCain Institute. These days, David's a senior fellow and lecturer at the Florida International University Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Your biography is quite a tongue twister, as we just discovered. And congratulations on the Red Sox big win last night. I think we finally purged the ghost of 1978. We did need. Go Sox. Go Sox. All right. And also joining us from our nation's capital is another Red Sox fan, Jonathan Katz, a senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as deputy assistant administrator in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Welcome back to the podcast, Jonathan. Looks like we got three Red Sox fans on the podcast today. We're all very happy. A trifecta. That's what they were a trifecta. So um, as much as I'd love to discuss the Red Sox and their awesome win last night over the Yankees, um, I think that awesome. we, have, we, have, we have more pressing matters to, dis- to discuss. Yeah. Um, so uh, seriously speaking, there, there's a perception out there in Washington, whether correct or incorrect, that the Biden administration would prefer to, for lack of a better term, park the Russia issue, to turn Moscow from being an unpredictable adversary into a more predictable adversary. And this was largely, according to the conventional wisdom, the thinking behind the Biden-Putin summit in Geneva back in June. Now, to be sure, this is not another reset. Russia is still being viewed as the, by the Biden administration as an adversary. But as President Biden's national defense strategy and national security strategy are being drafted, it appears based on an assumption on the part of some members of the administration that with bandwidth limited, the center of gravity should be focused squarely on China. 
and less on Russia. And um, this for many is a race against time because as we all know, once the NDS and, and the NSS is drafted, a lot of the debates here in Washington become about tactics and not about strategy. Um, David, are you picking up some of the same signals that I'm picking up on this? And how do you view the relative weight the administration is placing on China and Russia threats respectively, especially given what, what we both see happening on the European front in Belarus and Kaliningrad right now? Well, Brian, thanks for having me back. And it's great to be with Jonathan on this. Um, I, I, I have detected some of what you've said. I, I Look, I like the Biden administration approach and policy in the first three months, uh, right up until the middle of April when President Putin launched a buildup of Russian military forces along the border with Ukraine and Alexei Navalny's life possibly was hanging by a thread in prison. And for some reason, the administration concluded that a uh, invitation to Putin for a summit was a good idea. Now, the, the supporters and defenders of the administration would argue Navalny's still alive and Russia didn't move in in a overt and forceful way uh, into Ukraine as a result of that invitation. Um, but we've seen Russian aggression continue, um, whether it's with Belarus, which you follow so closely, um, or cyber attacks and ransomware attacks against us. Those continue, despite the fact that they're not in the headlines as much as they used to be. And we still see Russian behavior getting far worse inside the country, where arguably the situation is as bad as it was, say, under Brezhnev or Andropov. And, and so I, I am concerned that the administration did shift gears from where it had been up until about mid-April and has taken an approach that is better to engage with Putin and try to work with it to find areas of common interest. But as you said, the term park, to try to park Russia off to the side while the administration deals with China. So I, I'm, I'm uh, nowhere near as, as happy and satisfied with the approach it's taken since about the middle of April. And am concerned that the administration does not realize that Putin remains a very dangerous man and Russia may be in decline. It doesn't make it any less dangerous. Exactly. No, this is the point I, I want to get out there. I mean, nobody nobody disputes that Russia is in decline. Right. But declining powers can be more dangerous than rising powers. Sometimes I think as, as, as Russia has shown, because declining powers think they have nothing to lose. Um, David, I know you, you kind of keep tabs on the administration like I do. We, we obviously don't have perfect information here. But are you sensing a debate inside the administration? Because I was picking up signals that state under Secretary of State Anthony Blinken wanted to go one way. And that was a, a more robust um, defense against against Russian aggression, and the White House and the NSC under Jake Sullivan were favoring this this more park the Russia problem approach. I I don't I mean I don't know if that's accurate, but that is certainly the conventional wisdom that I've been picking up. I don't wonder if you're hearing the same things as you once served in government and seem to you know you have a pretty good window on how things are are going. I, I think I think that's right, Brian, and and, and I think um, state, if left to its own devices, would take a more hawkish approach toward things. Um, it, it is only recently, uh, in fact, what in the past uh, week or so, gotten the Assistant Secretary for European and Eurasian Affairs on board, Karen Donfried, right. from where Jonathan works. She was the president there and did a great job. Um, so it's great that she's on board. Um, the Deputy Assistant Secretary, Chris Robinson, has been kept on. He had been in the position for the past three years. And I think the natural instincts of Undersecretary Newland, Toria Newland, 
um, and even Secretary Blinken himself, are, are a, a tougher approach is, is more appropriate. Um, I don't sense that the Pentagon is much of a player when it comes to Russia, right. although General Milley did just meet with G General Gerasimov in Helsinki uh, for the first high-level talks at that level in a long time. Um, I do think that the NSC um, is taking the approach that we, we want to minimize the disruptive factor of Russia as much as possible. And if that means engaging with it, then so be it. One other player, though, that I would add to the mix is John Kerry, um, mm -hmm. who has been to Moscow several times. His counterpart, by the way, used to be the prime minister of Chechnya under Ramzan Kadyrov and has blood all over his hands, but that doesn't seem to stop Sec uh, Secretary Kerry from engaging with him. And Kerry, I think, has also been uh, whispering, perhaps, I, I'm now uh, getting a little carried away, but has been suggesting, at least to the NSC and to President Biden, we can engage with these guys, we can work with them, uh, particularly if we want to make progress together on climate, if we get tough with, with Putin and, and Moscow, then we kill any possibility of cooperation on climate. And so I think Kerry is also one of those voices that is saying, let's not get too tough, let's not add a lot more sanctions. Let's see if we can find common ground. And I, right. I don't think that's helpful. Right. No. And then part of part of this, and you alluded to it, David, is the staffing issue. I mean, there's a lot of nominations that are not being that are not moving to the Senate or being moved very slowly through the Senate due to holds and other other political considerations. We still don't have an ambassador in Ukraine, which I think is a is a, is a bit of a problem. Um, we we do have. You know, I mean, my, our mutual friend Michael Carpenter has been you know is is slated to be the OSCE ambassador, which I think is a great inspired choice, but he's still not been confirmed yet. And so a lot of the pieces of the, of the puzzle are not really in place, and I'm, 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 I'm worried that that is affecting uh, U.S. policy at the moment. I want to bring Jonathan into the conversation. Jonathan, I know from conversations we have had uh, off mic that you're not quite as concerned about this as I am and that da as David appears to be. You do believe the administration seems to be, you know, remains focused on the threat from Russia as well as China. How do you see this? I mean, what, what are you seeing that, that makes you less worried about this? Well, well, first, I just want to say I'm, I'm so pleased that we have three Red Sox fans together to have this conversation. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help myself um, after after what took place. Um, look, I, I I think we, you know, there is an expectation within an administration like this that there will be uh, differences of opinion. Um, I, I sure hope there are different voices uh, bringing to the table uh, where U.S. national security should focus at a time when we're still in the middle of a grips of a global pandemic, uh, we see the devastating effect of climate change. Uh, and, and this new administration, when it came in and it issued its interim national security strategy, lays out you know, what, what the U.S. priorities are. Uh, it laid out uh, that you know, within it that China and Russia both um, are adversaries, challenges for the United States, um, and that we can't do the same things that we've done uh, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, four years ago, and what took place over the last uh, four years. So this administration, and David, I'm sure you agree too, came in with a set of significant challenges, both in terms of the transatlantic relationship, even the relationship with Russia, uh, a Ukraine that was dragged through the mud uh, for the previous president. And, and so I, I'm looking at it, uh, very holistically in terms of the approach of the administration. Um, I, I think I don't see them suggesting in any which way that, that they believe that Russia is not a threat. 
Um, I use the word manage versus parking. You know, uh, how do you, you know, try to manage the relationships? How do you uh, mitigate risk, um, you know, for the potential of what could come? And I look at the actions being taken. And David, I do agree with you. That first three months, especially with respect to Ukraine, um, seemed as good as it could get in terms of the relationship. Um, and then we went through a rough patch. But, but one thing that, that gives me hope, too, is when I look at things like the joint statement on the U.S.-Ukraine strategic yep. partnership, um, it lays out really a comprehensive opportunity to strengthen that relationship. And when I look at, at how we engage with partners, I no, look not only at the, the security relationship, which is critical, uh, but also what are we doing in terms of energy? Uh, what are we doing in terms of economics? Um, how are we supporting the transition of these countries in the region? Uh, many of which we've seen in Georgia this week, uh, as well, that are still struggling internally. So I, I don't, I, 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 you know, China obviously, uh, it is, you know, in many respects the top uh, security challenge. We see Jake Sullivan meeting with his counterpart. I think even today to talk about the recent stress in the relationship, concerns over Taiwan, um, but but Russia is not is not parked, and I, I don't think at least from my conversation, anybody believes that, that Putin is predictable in that sense. I, I mean, in, in the best world, we would love to have some sort of a predictable relationship. But the last two decades, and I think the president, even during his meetings with Putin and before that, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, judging Putin based on the actions that they take, not a, not based on what we wish. Um, and, and I don't think uh, Biden, you know, is, is fooled uh, by any of this. But yes, they do have to manage these issues because there are global challenges that require them to do so. Uh, and so uh, keep I think we should keep, you know, externally think tanks, others, experts, keep their feet to the fire on the issues, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's Belarus or Ukraine. But also let's take a look at some of the things that they're doing. Um, and if they don't follow up on it, the administration, like on Nord Stream 2, as we're seeing as gas, you know, as as we see these challenges in spaces like Ukraine or even Moldova, where gas yep. prices have quadrupled, the U.S. does need to to back this up, and it's what it said about support for these countries impacted by Russian aggression, uh, energy aggression. So I still think I want to see how they react to this issue. And my understanding from hearing what I'm hearing from folks I talk to is that that there is going to be a response to um, uh, the the this gas shortage um, and impact in countries like Moldova. Uh, and Ukraine, but I don't know what that will be yet, and and, and so I, I want to see what that is, and if that's if that if they back up what they said they're going to do, I think that's a, a positive step. Now, Jonathan, you raise a lot of good points that I think are all worth unpacking. I mean, when I I remember back in January, right before inauguration, I did a podcast on the incoming Biden administration, what its foreign policy toward Russia may look like, and I made the point at the time that that Biden was going to be the first U.S. president since Ronald Reagan that did not enter office with the stated desire to, for lack of a better term, reset relations with Russia one way or another, whether, whether they use that word or not, right? You have to go back to Reagan, right? I mean, it certainly was the case with Trump. It was definitely the case with Obama. And it was the case, David, with your, for, your former boss, George W. Bush. And we thought it wasn't gonna be the case with Biden, 
But yet here we are. Um, and we're not in a we're not in reset mode. But is this just? I mean, I'm wondering. I'm just throwing some things out here for discussion. Is this just something we kind of have to go through now with every every post Cold War U.S. president of this like you know attempt and then this disillusionment with you know this attempt to have a more constructive relationship with Russia and then the disillusionment which which ultimately sets in. That's one point I want to kind of flesh out of here. The other is. Jonathan, you mentioned Moldova, where you know I saw that as a victory. I still see do see it with the with the election of Maya Sandu and you know the large majority that she had in parliament. We couldn't hope for a better government in Moldova than the one we got now. But yet, yeah, mysteriously, gas prices are going up. Gee, I wonder why that is happening. Right in Georgia, we had these local elections this weekend, and now I mean, my comment on those elections are: as long as Ivan Bidzina Ivanishvili, who is effectively a Russian oligarch with a Georgian name, uh, continues to be the real power in that country, all these these elections are details because they're going to turn out the way the ruling oligarch wants them to turn out, basically. So this is a classic case of all the cats away, the mouse will play. Right there, the U.S. isn't as present in the region as I would like it to be, as I'm sure, David, you would like it to be. Um, and then this is not even to mention Belarus, where we basically have the steady militarization of Belarus um, on Russia's part, effectively turning it into a de facto extension of the, the, the Western military district. So given all these things, David, what 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 would you have? How, how do you react to all of this kind of together? Because Jonathan raised a lot of good points here. He did. Uh, look, it, 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 it's a mixed picture, but you know, I, I think it sounds like we're all in agreement that there was a bit of a shift in approach in mm -hmm. in, in mid-April, mid and I think the buildup along the border with Ukraine and the Navalny situation is what are, are what triggered that shift. Um, that said, in May, um, Secretary Blinken went to Ukraine. Yep. Um, and and had I think a very good visit uh, was setting the foundation for President Zelensky's visit to the United States for his meeting with President Biden um, and and as Jonathan said this the joint statement that came out of that was very good but right after Blinken's visit was the decision on Nord Stream 2 and mm -hmm. the waiver on sanctions. And while that may have been driven more by a desire to improve and smooth relations with Germany, the, the impact on relations with Russia was, was very noticeable. Mm -hmm. And the impact it had on Ukraine was also yes. very noticeable. Oh, they're angry um, about that in Ukraine. I'll tell you uh, that. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they're still upset and they're still hoping that the certification of the pipeline might be held up as a way to keep it from going online. Um, the, Jonathan mentioned about the uh, predictability the administration wants to see in the relationship and also the word stability the administration has used. And, and I think I, I do have problems with the use of that phrase by the administration because I think it reveals a misunderstanding of Putin. Putin wants the exact opposite. He wants to be unpredictable and he is seeking to promote instability in his neighborhood. That is not the, the manner of functioning of a normal Western leader, but it is the way Putin operates because mm -hmm. he wants Ukraine and Georgia and Moldova in particular, and whatever he has to do in Belarus, to remain as unattractive and unappealing to NATO and the EU as possible. And if that means destabilizing large countries like Ukraine, even smaller countries like Georgia and Moldova along or near Russia's border, he'll do it because he doesn't want them to become um, threatening alternative models of, of mm. democratic systems of government that NATO and, and the EU might want to bring in. And so I think 
uh, the administration has not been as careful as it should be in its phrasing of aspirations with with dealing with Putin. Um, and and then that yes, Svetlana Sikhanovska met with with President Biden. But it took a real push from them took a lot of doing, in particular yeah. to make that meeting happen because w during her first week in Washington, that meeting didn't happen. She yep. thought President Biden was going to drop by during her session with Jake Sullivan. Didn't happen. And, and that would have been a disaster had the White House not fixed that mistake. Um, so so mixed messages. Um, uh, you know, Georgia, is, as you indicated, is a mess on its own. Um, and and we don't have an ambassador even with intent to nominate, let alone nominated right. for Ukraine. Um, there's someone in the in the works, from what I understand, but that person has not yet been announced. I don't know what the holdup is. Uh, we have not had an ambassador, and this is this is not just the fault of the Biden administration. To be clear, Jonathan's absolutely right about the mess we dragged Ukraine through under the Trump administration. But we, since Masha Ivanovich was unceremoniously removed as ambassador in the spring of 2019, we haven't had an, a formal Senate-confirmed ambassador yeah. in Ukraine. That's not a good signal, yeah. and it's not a good picture. David, you picked, you, you, you kind of sparked my, uh, 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 my thinking about something else I've been picking up about this. And I'm wondering if you're picking it up too, that there, is, there are arguments being made supposedly in the NSC that perhaps it's a good idea to try to peel off Russia from China. And kind of, kind of, kind of play play this 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 game by peeling off Russia and splitting the the, the Sino-Russian partnership by making concessions to Russia. This I'm hearing is being it's an argument that's being made by Asia experts and China hands in the in the in the NSC. It's certainly not an argument I can imagine any Russia expert making because any Russia expert is going to know that ain't happening. Are you picking this up too as well? Uh, less so, but um, I agree with you that that if that is the the goal of the administration, it, it's very misguided. Um, Russia's not going to get dragged into uh, a game with the Chinese on with us. Um, and 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 at the flip side of that is also something that I think you hear in some circles, whether in the administration or not. And that is, if we get too tough with Russia, we are going to push it closer to mm -hmm. China. That also is not true. So I, I think we need to deal with Russia as Russia, uh, with the Putin regime specifically, um, and recognize it as the threat it is, and, and realize that the history between Russia and China is such that I think it will limit yep. the degree to which they will align against us. Um, China would much rather deal with us because they see us as uh, their main challenger and competitor, and I think they don't look all that uh, positively on Russia and its outlook. So um, I, I, I hope the administration is not looking at Russia through a China prism one way or the other. Yeah, no, I mean, there is a reason that there has not been an enduring so Sino-Soviet or Sino-Russian alliance. There, there's a reason for this, right? Their interests just clash in too many in too many places. So I, I'm I. I'm less enamored of this idea of peeling Russia off from I mean, I'm not enamored of it at all. I think it's undoable um, for the reasons you spelled out, David. I mean, I want to there's two things we're seeing here. And Jonathan, you mentioned you know, about the, the, the administration reacting to Putin's behavior and not his words. We're seeing behavior on two fronts right now. One of them is this, the, you know, the NATO's eastern flank, 
right? What we see going on in Belarus, the steady militarization there. What we see going on in Kaliningrad, the modernization of the exi- of the already militarized uh, exclave of, of Kaliningrad, all of which are represent direct security threats to our allies in NATO, particularly the Baltic states and Poland. Uh, the the combination of these two things. Belarus and Kaliningrad make me really nervous because in between those two things is something called the Savalki Gap, right? which, 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 which makes a lot yeah. of military strategy. So we see behavior loud and clear on that front, right? Um, we also see the things you noted in Georgia and in Moldova. That's one front. The other is the broader political warfare against the West. The cyber attacks, the disinformation, including anti-vax disinformation that's going on right now. Don't we see enough behavior right now that should be eliciting a robust response? Yeah. Um, well, I think that that there's certainly security concerns about what's taking place um, in Kaliningrad, what's taking place in Belarus, questions about the Belarus-Russia relationship, um, and certainly partners and allies in the Baltic states, Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, are raising their hands of, you know, in concern. They want the U.S. to do more. Um, and that's an area where you see a commitment to permanent U.S. troops stationed in Poland, what the U.S. is doing in the Baltics, how NATO is reshaping itself in 2030, uh, and questions about how Europe can strengthen itself, too, because mm-hmm. I think you have brought in really our European allies um, who also need to be playing a role, uh, not just through diplomacy and assistance, but how the relationship plays out between uh, these countries and Russia. Uh, and I think I, I need to go back because on, on these issues, you know, Brian, you mentioned Georgia, Ukraine, Moldova. I mean, you know, a lot of times, even the relationship, let's put Moldova aside, because I think it is one of the, the better stories. And it, it had less to do with the United States and more to do with Moldovans internally yep. and, and Maya Sandu and really against all odds sort of, uh, you know, winning these elections, I, I think, uh, after many years uh, of really trying to, to move that country. Uh, but in Ukraine and Georgia, we cannot forget the flip side of who is in power and how they react as well. Uh, and I, I, you know, when I'm looking, I, I you know, sort of early on, even in this administration, questions about Zelensky's commitment to democratic reform. Some of these other areas that do have an impact on the relationship that have to be taken into account when we look at what's taking place in Georgia. Um, was there any predictability in the US-Ukraine relation during the Trump administration? No. Was there any predictability in Georgia too? Maybe the predictability was we'll look the other way when right. democracy is not, you know, when, when there's democratic backsliding. Uh, Pompeo was in Georgia at the end of 2020. Where was mm-hmm. he to, there talking about these issues? So I think this administration, which has democracy uh, at the front and center of its agenda, we have a summit for democracy coming up uh, in in December. Um, I suspect that you'll see Georgia there, Moldova, Ukraine uh, sitting around the table. But these things also matter because they matter when you hear Ukrainians say it. They say, we don't get our democratic, we don't get our rule of law, we don't get our governance situation in the right space. Um, that opens the door for Russia as well. So you've got to have partners on the other end right. willing to to you know to to follow through on their commitments. Moldova is different because you actually finally have a government in place, a real government that's yep. willing to do these things and they're under uh, the you know, they're under attack by by you know pro oligarchic forces, pro Russian forces uh, that don't want to see them succeed. Now this is the same thing we see in Ukraine where Russia does not want to see Ukraine succeed. 
We've seen this in Georgia as well. Uh, I do hope that we'll, we'll see a greater commitment, uh, as we saw in the U.S.-Ukraine strategic partnership, uh, with countries like Moldova that are willing to do the right thing. But I also want to say we need to have a stronger European commitment, whether it's on security and defense. And I frankly, even over the last couple months, uh, and seeing some of the reaction to U.S. policy and sort of the, you know, in some ways I feel um, beyond the pale on, on certain issues where the security um, issues that we saw over the nuclear submarine deal. Right. Yeah, sure. You know, in, uh, allies could disagree, but is it something that is worthwhile to withdraw your ambassador? Um, and, you know, I, I was thinking through myself, have, have, you know, when was the last time the French withdrew their ambassador from, from Moscow over something that took right. place? Right. Um, <laughs> and, and I just, I wonder about, you know, whether or not when you have the United States, we, we you know, whether or not, I always ask the question, who's the partner on the other end working with the United States in this region? And so who is the partner today? Is it Germany? Is it the UK? Is it France? Is it the EU? and their strength right now. And so I think the Biden administration has clearly jumped back into a leadership position, asking for the transatlantic community to be a cornerstone of right. that. And are they listening? Are they willing to, yeah. to engage? I'm sorry, Jeff, because I think as you're talking about China, you can't help talk and look at the quad or some of these moves that the administration has taken to try to solidify um, you know, partners. And, and it hasn't necessarily included European allies, uh, and and that may be the calculation is that they don't have the capacity to do that because of internal problems within the EU, a German election with outcomes still being decided, a French election upcoming, and so I think this has a great impact on yeah. on Russia as well. Yeah, this goes back to Henry Kissinger's eternal question: When I want to call Europe, whom do I call? You know, it used for the last sixteen years, the answer was obvious: it was Angela Merkel. Right. That, you know, no, no matter what anybody wanted to admit. But that is no longer the case. Um, and what I'm seeing the administration doing in Asia, um, you know, with with AUKUS or uh, the awkwardly named AUKUS, I think AUKUS uh, alliance and the subs and the quad. I see positive things going on there. No, I'm not an Asia guy. I'm a, I'm, I'm a Europe and Eastern Europe guy. What I'm seeing in Eastern Europe, though, I'm not I'm not as encouraged. Um, at the moment, I'm, I'm, I, I want something more robust going on in, in in Eastern Europe. I mean, you mentioned the the Moldova, and you're right. This was the success in Moldova was largely the result of the Moldovan people. But the U.S. there was an assist there. We get we helped get rid of Plahotniuk. And that certainly opened up the door for positive for, for, for positive things there. In Georgia, we've been largely absent. You know, which, 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 go ahead. Brian, can I, can I just jump in? I mean, on Plotnuk, yeah, sure, there was a, a, a move, an assist. We don't have the full clear picture of exactly what went on in the eight-minute you know, meeting with Ambassador Derek Hogan you know, when Mr. Plotnuk right. fled. And then he ended up in in sort of in the United States in Miami, uh, not with Dave, of course. Um, and <laughs> and so the bigger the bigger question really to me is on these on oligarchs, and I think this is a good conversation for this because I think it's an area where I think there might you know be a meeting in the minds here is is going after you know those those individuals whether we talk about Belarus internally in Russia or in Moldova those that are. Um, still hindering, uh, you know, the work of the government there, how best the United States. Yeah. And I think in Moldova is a good case of the importance of when we have a country like Moldova, where you have this opportunity, not just to sit back and say, okay, let's, can we provide funding for justice sector reform, which is really important. 
but the question is, when you have this, I call it sort of hard power efforts by Russia uh, in the sense of through corruption or disinformation, the United States can act. There's Global Magnitsky. Uh, there's a way to go after those that are responsible for bad behavior. And we see this in Belarus or, you know, the Navalny 35, uh, you know, right. uh, and I think that that is, I understand that the administration is going through a, a sanctions review right now. And how, and I, and I think how we use sanctions is, is something that that's certainly on the table. But I think in the case of Moldova, I'd like to see much more action, uh, you know, from the United States to be clear to those actors that are trying to pull, uh, you know, pull Moldova back towards where it was, yeah. that there is a reaction to it. And I would say the same thing about Belarus. There's certainly more that could be done. Yeah, John, I think there certainly is going to be a meeting of the minds on this. And I mean, I, I follow closely and have a lot of respect for the great work GMF is doing on this. Josh Rudolph's most most recent report on on covert money was was absolutely fantastic. I'm actually trying to get Josh to come on the podcast next week to talk about the uh, the Pandora Papers. Um, if you're listening, Josh, uh, there's an email in your inbox. <laughs> but um, but I do think there's going to be a meeting. There is a meeting on the minds because I think the single best thing the United States could do for the defense of the eastern flank is to is these these anti-oligarchic measures in these in these frontline countries, most notably Ukraine, Georgia, and and Moldova, and we see some positive movement. Ukraine, the Ukrainian parliament just passed that anti-oligarch law, which I think I had Volodya Dubovik from the from Odessa University on last week is a huge step in the right direction, and this kind of thing should be encouraged and and rewarded because I think this is this is the one area where where we could uh, we could have the most impact. Although I would also like to see some moves in terms of in, in, you know, enhancing NATO's enhanced forward presence in the East to make sure there isn't any shenanigans against our allies. David, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I would say that um, the Plahniuk and Kolomoisky examples are ones that Mr. Ivanashvili should keep in mind. Mm. Um, I think the sanctions on Plahniuk were very important in removing him from the scene and the very unhelpful role he was playing in Moldova. Um, I think uh, the the moves on Kolomoisky also helped um, weaken his influence and in, in position in Ukraine. And you, I think, rightly described Ivanashvili's uh, role in Georgia, Brian. And I think one thing we can do is to go after those who are not in official positions. Um, uh, even Ashvili has claimed that he's not even in a party position anymore with Georgian Dream, and yet he's the one pulling the strings, clearly, right. and pulling the strings in the wrong direction. And so I think it is is useful to remind him that if he thinks he can get away with this, then his children might not be able to spend all the right. time they do in the United States. Um, and other Georgian officials, so even Ashvili is not technically a, an official, but Georgian officials should keep this in mind. Uh, Jonathan mentioned the Summit for Democracy. Of course, it's going to be virtual in December, not in person because of the pandemic. Uh, but even so, I struggle to see how we could have Prime Minister Garibashvili sitting uh, at a virtual table participating in this, given, I think, the very destructive and negative role he has played in Georgia since returning to the prime minister position in, in February. Um, but... Uh, Ending our enabling of corrupt activity is one of the most important things mm -hmm. we can do for the three countries we've talked about, but also for Russia. 
the three of us and, and your listeners have heard, I think, numerous times from people like Vladimir Karamurza and others saying, we're not asking you to determine Russia's future for us. That's for us to do. We are asking you to stop enabling the corrupt activities and behavior that we see coming out of the Kremlin and from like-minded individuals in the other states. And I think that is something we could do. Congress is moving on this, I think, mm -hmm. with the legislation to demand greater transparency and disclosure to deal with offshore accounts and all of these mm -hmm. things. That, that's really important, particularly in light of the release of the Pandora Papers yes. um, and, and the uh, exposés that are being done on this. Um, it puts some of the people in these countries in a really bad light. Um, and so I, I think the more we can do in exposing this corrupt activity, look, Navalny is in prison in part because of all the exposure he was doing of corrupt activity among top Russian officials, and also because he posed a political threat to Putin. But um, uh, and, it, and it's obviously best if exposure of this comes from within these countries. But sometimes when you get thrown in jail, when your whole operation is, is effectively destroyed and dismantled by labels of foreign agent and extremism, sometimes we have to step in. And we, right. we you know, we have a, we have we devote a lot of money to our intelligence community. And sometimes we need to be a little more aggressive in putting out what we know while still yeah. protecting sources and methods. No, David, I would I would wholeheartedly agree with that. I've long been arguing we need to start uh, sanctioning these cutouts, these people who are not technically Russian officials, but who are carrying out Moscow's will. And that is Bidzina Ivanishvili in Georgia, uh, Viktor Medvedchuk in Ukraine, and, and Plahat, Vlad Plahotniuk in Moldova. Uh, we, you know, we've, we've, more or less solve the Plahotniuk problem. The Ukrainians seem to be in the process of solving the Medvedchuk problem, uh, two down, one to go. Um, and you mentioned the Pandora Papers. I was delighted to see uh, Ivanishvili's name come up in there. Now, I'd like to see if any U.S. law or EU law was violated there. And then that opens the door. That opens up the door for sanctions. And that's a, that's a great way, a great note to, to segue on, because I do want to talk in, this, in, the, in the, uh, below the fold about what we can do. So in a, in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look closer at NATO's eastern flank and what can be done to shore it up both in terms of the kinetic threat and the non-kinetic threat. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from sunny Miami is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for democracy, human rights, and labor in the administration of former President George W. Bush. David, of course, also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, and Russia and Ukraine. He's also been President of Freedom House and a Senior Director at the McCain Institute. These days, David's a Senior Fellow and Lecturer at the Florida International University Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. And joining us from our nation's capital is Jonathan Katz, a Senior Fellow and Director of Democracy Initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Europe and Eurasia Bureau of the U.S. Agency for International Development. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and tune in. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review if you like us, because it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical.
кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте Россия сегодня сейчас. вступает Привет. в силу поправки Это Навальный, я уже за свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности... годом вас. С новым веком. I've been arguing for months that Russia's creeping annexation in Belarus, in which Moscow is steadily expanding its military, economic, and political footprint in its smaller Western neighbor, is changing the security equation on NATO's eastern flank. Combined with the ongoing arms buildup in Kaliningrad, it represents a direct threat to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. It also opens up a new front in Ukraine. And all of the Russian cutouts and oligarchic activity we were discussing in the latter part of the first half, which I wasn't playing I'm discussing in the second half, but I certainly want to incorporate now. I want to bring this all into the equation. The question remains, uh, what can and should the U.S. and NATO be actually doing, uh, both in terms of addressing the Connecticut, kinetic military threat and in this broader political struggle against non-kinetic threats like, uh, like, like these oligarchic structures. So I just kind of want to continue where we left off in the first half, but also kind of broaden this out and say, what can we be doing here? What policies would we be recommending? David, what are your thoughts on this? Brian, let, let me just pick up on one thread from, from the last segment that we were discussing. Um, we were talking about the Pandora Papers, and, and let's keep in mind the role played by OCCRP um, on this oh, yeah. and the role of so many media outlets in doing tremendous work on uh, investigative reporting and exposing this. And the reason, one of the reasons this is so important is because Putin and Lukashenko and others are going after journalists because they are afraid of what they will expose in what's happening in their own country and the kind of misbehavior, if not illegal activity that they're engaged in. So one thing we can and should do is to ensure that we provide as much support as possible to, to journalists and media organizations and outlets, particularly ones that are getting forced out of countries like Russia, um, and, and, and stand with and support uh, RFERL during its mm -hmm. very difficult time, Absolutely. not just in Russia, but in Belarus as well. Um, on, on, on these threats that you're talking about, uh, let, let's, let's keep in mind, there is a threat underway as we speak with Lukashenko, with Russian compliance, uh, and rather Russian complicity, bringing in people from the Middle East to flood these countries and try to destabilize them. We're talking in particular about Lithuania, but also Poland and Latvia. And the border situations with these countries, with Belarus, is very, very dicey. Um, so we need to first help them shore up their borders. We need to get the uh, countries in the Middle East to block these flights because their people are being uh, exploited and, and abused in this process. Um, but then we also need to, uh, getting to, to the thrust of your question here, um, help these countries beef up their, their defensive systems and uh, increase our own presence in the region. Um, and it should, by our, I mean not just American, but other European countries to increase their presence there too. Uh, because what we don't want is for Putin to misread the situation and think he is getting away with all this and he can keep pushing the envelope and won't face any resistance. He's got to get hit pretty hard by pushback from us if we want to avoid any miscalculation on Putin's part by thinking, you know, all I have to do is just keep pushing and I'm, I'm only going to meet soft, uh, soft side on the other side, not, not anything steel. 
Yeah, no, David, I, and I'm seeing, I just, I just wrote a column that's going to pop later to, later today, uh, today being Wednesday, for the Atlantic Council on Belarus, uh, playing off of the testimony of C.B. Sully Sullenberger, um, the famous airline pl- pilot who landed a plane in the Hudson River back in 2009. He, he is Joe Biden's uh, nominee to be the U.S. representative to, to the, the ICAO, uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization. And in his Senate testimony, uh, Sully Sullenberger said that Belarus's uh, voting rights there should be suspended, which I, you know, that, that's going to take a, a majority vote of the, of the whole assembly uh, of the ICAO. But that's a step in the right direction, right? These are the kind of things we should be doing. I also saw in the European Parliament, there was a debate in the European Parliament yesterday, uh, two, M- two MEPs are calling for Lukashenko to be called before the, the International Criminal Court for torture. Again, this is a step in the right direction, and it's coming from the other side of the Atlantic. Um, your calls for Lukashenko's Russian enablers to be more robustly sanctioned, or, or in some cases, it's like the case of German Greff, whose name also popped up in the Pandora Papers, um, you know, uh, to be more yeah. robustly or not being sanctioned at all. So I think there's a there's, there's a lot we can be doing on this. Just to clarify on the kinetic piece, Dave, do you, do you advocate putting more troops in Eastern Europe to kind of beefing up NATO's enhanced forward presence to basically provide a little bit of peace, and, peace of mind for our, our allies in NATO's eastern flank? I, I do. I'm not confident the administration will take that move, but I, I do think that we should look to beef up our, our own U.S. military presence in the region. Um, I, I think that will increase the deterrent effect, um, and I think we should encourage our fellow NATO allies to increase yeah. their military presence there well as well. It shouldn't just be the United States. I mean, the United yeah. States has the biggest flag, but it shouldn't just be us. Yeah, no, it shouldn't. But I'll tell you, though, our allies in the eastern flank, they want American boots on the ground in a sure. damn big way. Jonathan, you got something to yeah, say? Yeah, but in all, you know, look, you still have to, you still got to meet your spend, your 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 budget requirements at NATO, which still remains um, a perpetual problem. But not only, not for all NATO members. And I want to just, you know, add the Black Sea, which to me ends up being this, you know, potential flashpoint in the Azov Sea, and uh, you know, potential blockade and the continued presence of, of Russian troops and equipment on Ukraine's border, the Zapid exercises, um, the things that you've talked about. Yeah, I, I think, you know, making certain, you know, we've seen a number of U.S. military exercises. I mean, obviously compared to the size that you see in Zapid and other uh, Russian exercises, they're not as significant, but they're important. They're really important. Um, and I would also just want to add too, you know, when we talk about these Eastern European countries too, you know, within the alliance, I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be this democracy guy, because part of the challenge what we see with with Poland today, in particular, is you know a, a government in Warsaw that invested very heavily in Trump, ideologically as well, um, but they still have these security issues. Now I I was very happy to see. That I think that this administration, I don't know how success, successful it'll be, is trying to walk and chew gum at the same time with the polls, which is we're not going to back away from any any security commitments that we have in Poland. Seen this in interviews done by U.S. officials that have, were in Warsaw, um, but at the same time we're going to we're going to have these discussions on what's taking place internally, and I think that's making uh, the Polish government, current government, uh, very uncomfortable. But I think this is a break from what you yep. saw in the last administration. And so I, my hope is that that we include this. We talk about what's kinetic, you know, or not. Uh, these things matter. These internal challenges internally within NATO, yep. within our partners, 
can't go away. And I, I think we, we, you know, one thing to add to is, hey, look, a lot of economies have been devastated over the last, you know, year and a half. I really hope that the administration, whether we through the three C's initiative, when we talk about Eastern Europe, to include Ukraine and Moldova, mm -hmm. um, that there is resources from the Development Finance Corporation uh, to help support this legislation in Congress in the House, just introduced in the Senate by, by uh, Senator Shaheen and others, that would support pr uh, providing resources for infrastructure so uh, our Eastern European partners and allies can turn to the United States instead of looking at money coming right. from China or elsewhere. So we've got it. You can't you can't just um, when we talk about things that that maintain strong uh, strong transatlantic alliance and and security alliances. You know, I, I think we're we're only as strong as our weakest link. And when you have a number of backsliding democracies like right. Hungary or we see in Turkey, you know, Turkey should be a bulwark against Russia. But we also see Erdogan right. wanting to meet Putin. Um, and, and that has a lot to do with his internal power grabs within Turkey, uh, where he stands today and the challenges Turkey faces. But I, I, I don't think you can overlook these challenges. And I don't think I, I know it's not going to get the same airplay as as security does sometimes, but it's equally important that you have democracies, <laughs> rule of law, and that you have allies uh, swinging in the same direction or rowing the same direction as the United States. Otherwise, you have incompatibility, as we're seeing with a number of allies in terms of their interests and their closeness to both Moscow and China. Yeah, no, uh, Jonathan, I'm really glad you brought both of those things up. The normative aspect of this, uh, the importance of this cannot be overestimated. And when we say NATO is an alliance of values, its detractors always come back with the retort. Well, how can you say it's an alliance of values? Look what Orban's doing in Hungary. Look what's going on with, with, with the peace government in, in Poland. And that's a problem. That's a problem that, that really has been neglected and needs to be addressed. I'm also glad you brought up the Black Sea. Which is the also the eastern flank? It's it's the maritime border, you know, between be, between NATO and um a, a, and and Russia, and we see. I mean, the Ukrainians can't even sail from Mariupol to Odessa, two Ukrainian ports in Ukrainian water the whole way because Russia's claiming that territorial water around Crimea, which nobody else recognizes. I would like to see a lot more freedom of navigation exercises being done there to say, well, yes, they can do that. Um, they're, they're sailing between two Ukrainian ports. Also, I mean, if you look at the Black Sea, I mean, it, it's, it's worrisome. At first glance at the map, it looks great. We got, you know, we got NATO member Turkey, NATO member Romania, you know, NATO partners Ukraine and and Georgia. It looks like a NATO map, but a NATO member Bulgaria. When you look at it in reality, though, well, how reliable an ally is Turkey? How reliable an ally is Bulgaria? And then in Georgia, well, Russia's got the port of Sahumi there because they're occupying Abkhazia. Um, so the, the 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 region looks shaky. I know our, our common friend General Ben Hodges, the former commander of U.S. Army Europe, is working a lot on this. It's great to have an Army guy working on Navy stuff. I always like to kid him about that. But this, I'm I'm glad you brought up uh, the the uh, the NATO uh, the the Black Sea issue. One thing I want to hit on before we go, and it's kind of the it's the elephant in the room here. Um, and I want to just kind of talk about this in the last few minutes we have before we have to wrap it up. Is this notion of can, as I said at the beginning, can the U.S fight a cold war for a lack of a better term and i know people are going to take issue with that term and i don't care um, but we are in a normative struggle we're in two normative struggles one with china and one with russia can the united states fight and the and the allies fight a two-front cold war do we have the bandwidth to do this because this has been largely presented or proposition 
And I don't know. The United States, I grew up believe, believing in, could chew gum and walk at the same time, as you said, Jonathan. I, I, I mean, do we have the bandwidth to do this? You've both served in government. I haven't. So I have less of a sense of this bandwidth problem. David, is there a bandwidth problem or is this something we're, we're just telling ourselves? I don't think we have a choice. So, um, and, and I think we, I think the administration realizes this, um, that we have to be prepared to deal with two major challenges, uh, China on the one hand, Russia on the other, frankly, while also being vigilant for, about uh, threats coming from non-state actors and others. Um, so to me, um, whether we have the bandwidth or not, we better find it. And I, I think we do have the bandwidth. Um, we, we, we do need to build up, I think, our, our naval fleet. Um, that, that has been lacking over the years. Um, but our, our air force, our, our air power is, is really unrivaled. And I, I think if we had to, we, we would be in a position. Um, there has been, uh, was first called pivot, then rebalance, um, uh, an emphasis on Asia. And that is not necessarily wrong. But at the same time, if we ignore what Putin is up to, we will rue the day. And so I think we have to be uh, preparing ourselves for serious challenges coming from both fronts. And I do think we are capable of, of addressing those challenges. Jonathan, the last word to you. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything that, that David said. I think the, the, the difference that I see right now is, is, is twofold. One is the internal challenges within the United States, polarization, mm -hmm. this really this threat of of you know Trump returning. And I, I call it a threat because it 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 you know threatens to pull the United States apart, uh, create greater polarization. Uh, and when you have that, you have the inability of the country um, and leaders to uh, frankly, from my perspective, many of them to do the right thing which is to make certain that the interests of the American people, our security, our prosperity, our health are protected. And I don't see that right now. And I think, uh, I think we maybe we underestimate uh, the, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not one of those people, what, what January 6th meant, what the last four years meant in the United States. And I see that in the president's speech. I, I do think whether they, you know, they succeed, and I'm frankly, I'm, 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 I'm pulling for this because we should all be, which is, you know, the president and the administration really trying to th think through and deal with these very tough issues that that maybe wouldn't have been dealt with otherwise before what took place. And I think um, that will largely impact uh, even the national security debate, whether we're prepared as a country economically, politically, um, and then in terms of security technology, space, uh, you know, how we respond, I think this is really, I think this is the is a crucial question. And there are sub issues with Europe, how, how strong can Europe be as a partner or our Asian uh, partners in Asia. Uh, but I think this is underlined. I agree with everything David said. I just, and I think the administration is trying to reposition the U.S. to be able to compete. We can, we're going to have, we should have these debates about whether it succeeds or fails. I just wish we were having this debate when we didn't have people who are still saying that the election outcomes weren't what they were or are willing to use extremism and force, um, you know, and, and that's why uh, internally that is a real challenge. And yeah. I, I know this podcast is about looking at Eastern Europe, but I can't help thinking about, you know, how these things really weaken the United States from within. And frankly, somebody like Vladimir Putin, who has spent a lot of time trying to, uh, you know, this is this is his, you know, his win. 
uh, you know, when he uh, and how he is engaged in across the globe at seeking uh, to divide and polarize populations, uh, but also supporting the likes of people like uh, Mr. Trump. No, you're right. It, it really can't be divorced from this because this is part of this bandwidth problem. And, 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 and this is the sense where I'm like, I'm inclined to say, you know, to, give, to cut this administration some slack, except we can't afford any slack right now. But this is taking a bandwidth. I mean, you know, not only fighting a Cold War in two fronts, not only dealing with a pandemic, but keeping the country together. And that that that's that's a lot of bandwidth to demand from one administration. You you raise the issue of Putin's role in this. I don't know if you saw the, the excellent piece in foreign affairs by our common friend Fiona hill about this uh, Putin's strange victory in America, which is which is it basically hits it on the head of saying that Putin succeeded in kind of making America look a little bit more like Russia than it used to look like. And that's that's disturbing. And that's I mean, maybe maybe that is the subject of a, a podcast going forward. Um, unfortunately, today, that's we, we, we're going to have to wrap up because that's oh, David, you want to run jump in one more time? I, I just it. wanted to close the loop on where we started, Brian, while we were uh, doing this session. Uh, the New York Times sent out a headline saying the Yankees aren't bad, they are ordinary. And I would just say the Red Sox aren't bad, they are good. So, <laughs> well, here, here, I, I will. You're not going to get any argument from either of us on that. Go Sox. Uh, I, I, you're, you're in Florida. I'm, um, they're, they're playing the. You're not in Tampa though. They're playing the Rays in the in the next uh, the next series. We'll, we'll, we'll both be keeping an eye on that. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from sunny Miami, Florida, has been the one and only David Kramer, who served as assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights, and labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as deputy assistant secretary of state for European and Eurasian affairs, where he worked in Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. He's also been president of Freedom House and a senior director at the McCain Institute. These days, David David is a senior fellow and lecturer at the Florida International University Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. And joining us from our nation's capital has been Jonathan Katz, another Red Sox fan and a senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Before joining GMF, Jonathan served as deputy assistant administrator in the Europe and Eurasian Bureau of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Gentlemen, thank you as always for an enlightened and lively, enlightening and lively discussion. I'd also like like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcasts on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and tune in. If you do, and if you like us, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility a lot. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 